this episode. For 358 years, mathematicians around the world have been killing themselves trying to prove Fermat's last theorem. It was 300 pages of proof, so it wasn't a straightforward problem-solving exercise. Apply yourself to a problem, and even if you don't solve it for 358 years, I reject pessimistic thinking. I think that's just a problem, yes. and problems are solvable. The world's mathematicians going, okay, this guy thinks he's proved this thing, right? Let's, we'll yeah. see about that. But we can certainly sell the film rights as well. There's a movie. Oh, wow, there you go, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean Callahan, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Mike Adams. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yep. G'day again, Sean. Yes. You're probably wondering, where is Mark? Well, I can tell you, I spoke to him yesterday. He is got through the Simpson Desert, not totally unscathed. I think he had a, um, a malfunction with his suspension system. However, made it now to South Australia. I think he's in the Flinders Ranges somewhere as we speak. So um, still in the outback, I would say, is how you would put it. Anyway, we'll see him back. We'll see him back on the podcast in probably two or three weeks from now. But Mike, it's great to have you on board again. Um, I believe you have a story for us. I do. And uh, let's kick into that and then we can have a chat about it, what it all means. Yes, hopefully a story that our uh, listeners can use themselves. So um, I thought I would talk on the topic of optimism and problems. So I'm a, um, a follower of a, of a scientific philosopher by the name of David Deutsch, and he has a statement which is problems are inevitable, but good news, problems are solvable. And um, the story I'd like to uh, pass on to support this and to, for us to have a chat about is the story of Fermat's last theorem. So Fermat's a French mathematician who in 1637 was reading uh, one of the ancient Greek texts, the Arithmetica by uh, Diophantus, that was written in 300 AD. That's a mouthful. It's a mouthful, that one, yep. <laughs> and in the margin, he made a comment, and his comment was um, that... For the equation, I'll just give a little bit of maths here, not to scare people off, for the very simple algebraic equation, which is a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n, there are no positive integer solutions for any number of n more than two. So it'll work for a squared plus b squared equals c squared, which we know as Pythagoras' theorem, but it doesn't work for any other n. And then he wrote a little comment after that saying, well, there's not enough room in this margin for me to prove it, and it's quite long, but you know, trust me. But I've got it sorted. I've got it sorted. Yeah, exactly. And for <laughs> 358 years, mathematicians around the world have been killing themselves trying to prove Fermat's last theorem. And in fact, it was in the 1900s downgraded to Fermat's conjecture because people believed that, in fact, this thing couldn't be proved. But in um, 1994, an English mathematician by the name of John Wiles proved Fermat, Fermat's last theorem it was 300 pages of proof it wasn't a straightforward problem solving exercise um, but he proved it and it came um, it's still in the guinness book of records as the mathematical theorem with the most unsuccessful attempts at uh, solving it is that right <laughs> but the point i would like to make sean is that problems are solvable and not only that if you pick a high quality problem there are many problems in the world that people are anxious about 
And my opinion is the best approach to a problem that you feel drawn to, and problems have a magnetic pull for people like me or engineers, is apply yourself to a problem. And even if you don't solve it for 358 years, Fermat's last theorem spawned entire fields of mathematics in the attempt to solve them, including algebraic number theory, which is one of the main pillars of mathematics. So, um, and it was solved. And, it and is solved. do you think Andrew Wiles's uh, solution was anywhere near what Fermat had in we his mind? We will never know. We will never know. <laughs> 300 pages of, of, of proof doesn't sound like something that uh, Fermat could was was tossing up to put into the margin or not I yeah don't know. i don't know i don't know but um but i just think it's a fascinating example and it's you know we often come up against people that are pessimistic you know this problem is impossible and um i reject pessimistic thinking i think that's just a problem yes. and problems are solvable problems plus time I mean, well, effort plus time plus will give you a solution. Plus and creativity, yeah, right. Plus creativity, yeah. We apply, humans apply, we apply our creativity to solve the problems. Now, we quite often create a few other problems in the process, but then that's okay. We'll just solve those as well. I remember reading a terrific book about uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. And it also is an example of almost like the antithesis of collaboration. So <laughs> yes. uh, Andrew uh, Wells, Wiles, Wiles. Well, yes. yeah. Andrew Wiles essentially locked himself up in his garret and, you know, just ferret away on this thing for an enormous period of time. I can't remember. It was, it was years, right, yes. that he was working on it. And, uh, you know, come down for, you know, a bit of food and, uh, not much conversation and go back and, and continue working on this problem. So, um, you know, they talk about, oh, no, the, you know, the, the single, uh, you know, genius theory is, is, is not true, but I think we've got an example there. Well, of, that's, uh, I would maybe um, put a different spin on what you just said then. So yeah. we have this age old question of genius versus collaboration, right. And, and are there really geniuses and, uh, you know, I would say that Fermat and Wiles both are geniuses. They are mathematical geniuses. But there's two parts to knowledge creation. Um, the first part is the conjecture. It's the guess at the solution. And it's truly a, a creative act. And the second part is the criticism. And that was done by the world's mathematicians. Because can you imagine the world's mathematicians going, okay, this guy thinks he's proved this thing, right? Let's, we'll yeah. see about that, right? And oh. then they kill themselves trying to disprove his proof. And that's actually how science proceeds. It, it's individual genius and collaborative criticism. And criticism is not a bad word. Criticism is a very good word because we have to apply collective criticism to make knowledge go forward. And it does, it progresses in that way. One of the things I've been uh, thinking about recently is this idea of you know, how do you enhance your appreciation for stories? Yes. Right? A bit like the appreciation for fine wine or coffee or chocolate or, or whatever it might be that, uh, you know, that takes your fancy. And part of it is about slowing down and part of it is about and a really uh, turning over the story and looking at it from different perspectives to... Yes. understand it right and that's what this podcast is about 
right? It's yeah. a sort of an appreciation of stories. So going back to this little story, what would you say are some elements of this story that, you know, you can appreciate that makes it an effective story, for example, something that makes people lean into it and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. Yeah, it, it is. It's yes. At first glance, you might think, well, you know, mathematical story. Oh dear, and uh, no one died in this story. There was no love life. There was no major emotion coming out, right? So it doesn't really, at first blush, look like it should have elements of a good story. I think it's a good story. Yeah, it has a visual moment. It has a really interesting visual moment, which is the margins. I talk about the margins of the arithmetic of paper and him writing. Yeah, an incomplete statement. So it has now it has also um, set up a curious thing. You know, okay, so could this thing be proved? And then the rest of the story is taking you through, could it or couldn't it be? So it maintains its surprise all the way to the end when we hear that, yes, in fact, it was proved, yes. even though people didn't think it could be. And uh, yeah, so yeah, just a couple of little moments. I, I think, yeah, I think, you know, that that, mar- that visual of the margin is definitely one of them. Yeah. And ha- I've never seen the actual handwritten note. Have you seen an uh, yeah, so if it? Yes, um, if you go to Wikipedia and type in Fermat's Last Theorem, you'll see an image of um, oh, right. Diophantus's um, page with the margin text. So you can actually see. Really? So you can actually we, see we his uh, yeah. little scribble. Yep. And because um, I'm just thinking, you know, as you tell that story, uh, helping people see, you know, is it written in thick pencil or is it written in sort of dripping, you know, ink off the end of a quill or, you know, like what, what is it? Uh, what does it well, look it's, like? Uh, it looks like um, printed on a, um, on a printing press, um, but it is in Greek. So, you know. Um, what, his comments are printed in? Uh... No, his comments are in French. Yes, but, but papers in Greek. What's the handwriting like? That's what I guess. Yeah, I'm saying. so I have to go and have back. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah, but, but I'm just sort of saying, if you're, I'm in thinking of you know like that visual element. How can you really draw that visual element out even further? I think there's other great things in this story, and that is uh, just the time it took for that solution to be found, and then to discover. That, that proof was hundreds of pages long. I mean, this, you know, like, I can't even get my <laughs> mind around that. Um, so it really, it really does say, say something about persistence and, you know, someone who is willing to dedicate a big portion of their life to solve just one, you know, problem, which in some ways you don't know if that's going to, well, he cre- ends up creating a whole bunch of new fields of maths. Yes, right? that's right. Yes. But you know, it's he doesn't know that before he starts, does he? No, but, which is pretty um, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, but you know, knowing that problems are solvable and knowing that the process of trying to solve a problem will lay out other solutions and other problems, you know, that's that's worth knowing, I think. And um, yeah, yeah, and I think you know, our world is in need of a little bit of optimism in that sense. And you know, this this story dates from the start of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was the beginning of people starting to criticize anyone, including religion, which is really what had to be to criticize to have free flow of ideas. And I think if you went before this time, uh, 
people would not have thought that problems were solvable. People would have thought that the world just will remain the same. It will never change. You know, the problems my father had will be the problems I have. And now we start to get this, no, we can actually make progress. And if Fermat put his theorem out today, it would be solved in a, in a year or two, not 358 years, you know, because we're faster and faster at solving and creating, but solving yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to the actual, you know, characteristics of that story, what, what do you think could be done to make it a better story? Is there something that we can well, draw out or, or, yeah, tell in a different way that would make it a better story? There is, I have some questions about the story. Like, I don't really know much about Fermat himself. It sounds like you maybe read a little bit more than I did, but it could be knowing a little bit more about the character of Fermat and yeah. you know, what sort of person he was. How old was he when he did that? I don't, I don't know. I quickly researched this. I was looking for, a, by the way, um, just so the listeners know my thinking process, you, you asked me for a story that, um, mm. that anyone could tell. Yep. I had to think about... You know, what is a message that I think is relevant right now, you know, given that we're kind of all locked down and it seems like we're under the weight of our problems. And I thought, well, I'll see if I can find a story that that shows that we can solve our problems, you know, and, and I think this is a kind of famous one. So so that was my thinking process mm. around yeah. the story. Yeah. But I didn't I think- spend a lot of time trying to get all the facts and details. I jotted down here on a piece of paper beside me, you know, Fermat's name, the date. Um, the date, Andrew Wiles' name and the date that he solved it, you know, in 358 years. That's pretty much all yeah, I needed to tell the story. Exactly, exactly. I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of, you know, elements that could make it an even more impactful story, I wonder whether you could, you know, with a bit more research, you know, sort of look at where, who, who sort of gave it the best shot in solving, yes. solving the problem but failed. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because the we famous, kind of like famous we, names that probably failed. I'm sure there's lots of them. Yeah, that's right. And you could sort of tell like because tell those little attempts, but they failed. You know, tell the attempt failed. Then and then paint a bit of a picture of Andrew Wiles and you know where he come from. And yep, I, I remember when I read about him. You know, certainly the I think he, the surname of the author was Singh, I believe. But the um, the picture they painted of him you didn't immediately think he could do it, right? Which I think just makes for a good, better story, right? Yep. Uh, and, and I remember thinking, okay, yep, he's, he, he might be able to do it, but I'm not sure. It's not like he was renowned genius before we started sort of thing. Um, so I think those sort of elements. But again, you know, this extends the story. You know, you may or may not want to do that, right? Yes, well, um, I would say, to that I would say, you know, I've delivered the anecdote, but we can certainly sell the film rights as well. There's a movie. Oh, well, there you go, exactly. <laughs> um, what about then the how you might introduce this story and, and what, what scenarios do we see that we could put this story to, to, to work, if you like? Um, is there a, a particular scenario or a type well, of group? What I had in mind was, was in response to pessimism, you know, and that when problems seem overwhelming. Now, in one sense, I suppose this was a really big problem that took a long time to solve. Um, but it solved a whole bunch of other problems along the way. Um, that was my original thought. Persistence uh, would, is another, is another yeah. thing. So we persist on problems that catch our imagination. And this one did. Uh, it caught the imagination of generations of mathematicians. 
Yeah. I think it'd be great for any um, cohort who who have that real mathematical or numbers bent. You know, we're talking insurance, we're talking banking, we're talking, yeah. you know, Cardiff engineering, et cetera, right? And, you know, to be able to, as soon as you say that, it's, it's, it's not an everyday, you know, even though you and I have heard of Fermat, it's not an everyday, um, you know, sort of person that people would know. So I think people would find it interesting. I think they would go and dig in and find, you know, try to find out a little bit more once they, they heard that initial story, for example. Yes. Yeah. I want to know: Did Andrew Wiles then ever solve anything else? Right, like. Well, he has does a. Does this set a, you up to then, you know, do a whole bunch of other uh, amazing uh, theorem uh, solving, or, or not? I briefly looked at his Wikipedia entry, and it's it's a pretty spectacular series of achievements. Yes, he's right. Won, okay, he's so he's no, he was no he was no slouch. He didn't fluke it. A whole bunch of prizes. So yeah, he's no dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, wasn't like he fluked on the answer. Didn't yet. fluke on that one. Okay, good. No. I'm glad to hear that. You know, yeah. you know, it'd be a bit disappointing otherwise. Yes. Um, great. Maybe, maybe maybe this is one other point to bring out in this story, which is um, I don't know. In Australia, we call it the smartass, right? So Fermat's like just offhandedly put this thing in here, and like this, I've proved this, but you know, it's there's not enough space here for it, kind of thing, right? Yeah, and. That's irritating, isn't it? Like that's, you know. Um, oh, ultimately. That, that, that is a kind of a red flag to other mathematicians. And there would be as many trying to prove him wrong as, as right, I suspect. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that also adds to the story, that, that, uh, that little detail. <laughs> one, of the, um, one of the things I've been really been mindful of recently is that, you know, going back to the scientific method, is that a real big part of it is that level of, of, being humble, humble enough to sort of say, look, this is my best understanding right at the moment, but I'm open to the fact that, you know, this may not be, you know, the actual answer. This, this might be just my understanding because I don't know, you know, what other inputs there are, et cetera. And I was listening to um, uh, Sam Harris talking to uh, uh, the Thousand Brains book. What's his name? Uh, Jeff Hawkins. Jeff Hawkins. And Jeff Hawkins, every now and then, was adamant. You know, he would say, no, no, I know. I know it is this way, right? Yeah. And I must admit, it's really, that's the push strategy. He's pushing this at me. And I must admit, I'm sitting there going, I'm pushing back. I'm going, really? You know, do you? And he was talking about uh, AI and how yeah. essentially there, there, there won't be an existential threat, right? Yeah. But for some reason, he can see into the future, right? Because he, and it's, it's got to do with a, almost like this attitude of I've logically worked through this. And therefore, if I've logically worked through this, I can predict the future. Um, how many people are we seeing come a cropper uh, in trying to predict the future, especially when you're adamant, you know what the future is? Anyway. I just yeah, throw well, that just, in as an observation because I know it's something you're interested in. Oh, well, I have, I have two comments to make about that. The first one is that Jeff Hawken is one of two or three people on the planet who actually understands how artificial intelligence, how general intelligence works, and that's something that most neuroscientists don't know. So in that sense, he knows some things that Sam Harris Shaw doesn't know and thinks he does. Um, but the other thing is, back, I kind of also agree with what you said, and... and we 
there's, there's a specific thing that we cannot predict in principle. In principle, we cannot predict future creation of knowledge. It's yeah. impossible to predict what people will create in the future, because if it was possible, it means we already had that knowledge. So it's by definition impossible. So in that sense, I agree with you, but I also know where Jeff was coming in that conversation. And there's a much better conversation with Jeff Hawkins and Lex Friedman, where Jeff is much more himself and much more vulnerable and less like that. Less, Sam Harris, less in competition. Sam Harris has a, has a way of getting people's backs up on this because he has a very pessimistic outlook, Sam Harris. So I, I don't agree with Sam's pessimism. I do agree with Jeff's optimism. Uh, and so, yeah. It, it, I'm always reminded of Philip Teplock's work on uh, forecasting. So he did, he did that famous study where he asked hundreds, might have been thousands of people, uh, to forecast things that they could measure. Like, you know, would the economy go up and would it, yeah. by how much? And, yeah. you know, would, all sorts of things. Lots of all these experts. And uh, when they gathered together, and it was literally hundreds of thousands of data points, uh, they discovered that experts were, and his famous line were, was, experts were no better than a chimpanzee throwing a dart at a dartboard. Yeah, no better than chance. No better than chance. And, and in fact, the expert was worse if they were adamant. Yes. Right? right. If yeah. they adamant, like, this is how it is, they were the worst forecasters, right? The best forecasters were the ones who sort of said, well, you know, I've looked at all these things and, and it seems like it's heading in this direction and my general, like that sort of attitude, the humble attitude. And so, so that's I, why, say, that's why um, I, I feel uh, that, that's what's sitting in the back of my mind when I hear those sort of statements. Except, um, so this, so what I would say to this is fortunately, it doesn't matter if famous scientists are humble or um, you know, admitting that they could be wrong, it makes absolutely no difference because we have a system and the system is the system of criticism of other experts criticizing what they say. So Newton was famously arrogant and not a very nice person, one of the world's greatest geniuses ever. But Newton's papers would not have been accepted if other people hadn't criticized and looked at it and appreciated that, you know what, it's right, despite the fact that we don't like the guy. And no one liked him. So good news, that doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, no, it does matter. No, it, matters. No, it, it matters enormously because uh, all the people at the current time T, right, only know a certain amount. They can't see No, no, what I'm future. saying is it doesn't matter that there's hubris or that the person is claiming stuff and you think it sounds arrogant. That what, only thing that matters is what society does to criticise the work and whether or not it's proven to be so or not. But here's the, here's the reason why it matters, Mike, and that is humans are more influenced by people who sound authoritative, right? Yet, as Tetlock shows, the most authoritative sounding people are the most off base in terms of their forecast. So yes, we, have a, we have a paradox there. We're right? not talking about the same thing because I'm talking about the difference between an everyday meme and a rational meme. So an everyday meme is just the thing that humans are influenced by and pick up and talk like a song or a story. And a rational meme, like Newton's Principia, is one that is so bloody useful, it doesn't matter what is the personality or the influence or how influential that person is. As soon as it gets out, 
it's so useful that it has to be taken up. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's a, it's an interesting area. I, I, I'm just responding to uh, my latest Sam Harris podcast. Yes, he does get up my nose every now and then. Um, but in this case, it wasn't just Sam. It was his, his, the person he was interviewing. Um, the, other, the other thing I know, the sorry, guys, on this podcast, we're going on a bit of a, a tangent here. Um, but perhaps you might find it interesting. Um, but the other thing I found fascinating in the conversation, that conversation was that uh, there was a a real sense of this logical, rational um, sort of understanding of the system without any mention of, you know, the uh, properties of com complex systems, you know, and emergence and things which are intuitive, not intuitively, but just explicitly unpredictable, right? And it was as if, no, 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 we know the system. You know, we know we've got all the components. We've worked out the system. Therefore, we know how the future is going to unfold. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, it'd be lovely if the world worked like that. But, um, you know, that's certainly organic systems don't tend to work like that. There's a lot of uh, emergence in there, which, you know, you can't just retrospectively turn back the dial and say, okay, this is how it works. Let's fast forward that. We know what's going to happen. I don't know. Why, why are these guys not mentioning that? that type of science uh, in their work, do you think, Mike? Well, this is why the conversation with Lex Freeman was so much better than one with Sam Harris, because they do right. get into complexity theory and they do talk about emergence of intelligence. Do they? Thousands brain. I mean, that's what a thousand brain model is in Hawkins' book. It's the emergence of intelligence from, from multiple brains in, the, in our cortex. So, yeah. Yeah, I, anyway. I, think, I think that... Um, I think what Jeff Hawkins is pushing back on is, um, you know, it, it's, it's overuse of the precautionary principle. Um, you know, we've invented this uh, antibiotic and here's all the things that could go wrong. Yeah, but here's all of the people that will be saved, whose lives will be saved right now right. by this antibiotic. Yep. And, and so trying to predict into the future all the things that will go wrong to, to say that there's this precautionary principle and therefore we shouldn't do it is as crazy as trying, like you were saying, you know, we cannot predict what will, you know, that we know really what's going on. So, yeah, mm. there's a balance there. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should get back to the story. Yes. Right. Let's, let's finish up. We like to give it a rating. That's our, our want in this podcast. Um, so I'm thinking of um, yeah, Fermat's uh, last theorem story. You know, I for me, for me, that's a an eight out of ten story. It's a it's a handy story to have in my back. I'm glad you've reminded me of it because I totally forgot it's not in my story bank. So I'll be getting that into the story bank, and I I can see myself using it. What about for you, Mike? Where, how would you? Uh, Put it in yeah, your yeah it's not the, it's not uh, to get more than an eight for me there has to be a really strong emotional kick in the story and this one mm. is more of a i think it's more of an intellectual kick um and so and so and it's really a story for the right time and place you know for relevance but i'll give it a seven and a half i think it's a good story and it's a great name it's a great name for a story <laughs> exactly exactly fantastic well Thanks, everyone, for listening in to uh, Mike and I. Now, sorry for that diversion, uh, you know, sort of our musings there. Um, but 
I hope you enjoyed that. Put that one in your story bank. Um, we'd love to hear any feedback on stories that you've used. Uh, we do get to hear some classics uh, from our, uh, our listeners. So that's really great to hear. Shoot them in. And um, yeah, and all the best for using your stories in the workplace. Thanks again for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. And yeah, tune in next week for another episode of How to Put Your Stories to Work. Bye for now. Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from author to audio.